In his book, uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, John Calvin, he wrote this. He said, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. It is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. So John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he concludes that we learn who we are uh, only once we have proper knowledge of who God is, once we've looked upon him and know him. We cannot begin to know our hearts and our minds. We can't begin to know our purpose. We can't begin to understand our lives until we understand the one who made us. And Calvin's words really sum up what we've been doing over the last several weeks in this series, the names of God and why they matter. My intention with this series has been to just lay before us truths about God's character based on the names that he has called by those who trust him in the Old Testament so that we may look upon God's face, so that we may behold him, so that we may come to know him better, that we may possess, as Calvin says, true and sound wisdom, first of God and then of ourselves as we understand who he is. And this is something that we as followers of Jesus need to do. We need to stare into the face of God to know him so that we can know ourselves. And it is an action that is completely countercultural to what the rest of the world says that we should be doing. Our world largely ignores the existence of God and increasingly believes that wisdom and understanding and truth is found merely by looking within ourselves. Right, take, for example, the disciplines of psychology and mindfulness. What they often get right is the fact that joy and peace and fulfillment cannot come from external sources in the world. Psychology and mindfulness would agree with Christianity that taking our value and sense and worth from external sources in this world doesn't work. But where Christianity splits ways with modern thinking and man-made disciplines is that we reject the idea that lasting peace and joy and fulfillment is found by looking inside of ourselves. What psychology and similar man-made disciplines get wrong is they have no grid for the reality and existence of sin. They have no measure for the rebelliousness of man's nature due to sin. They have no category for the fact that people are not inherently good and therefore cannot fix themselves. That the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. And looking inside yourself for truth and joy and fulfillment can be as destructive as looking to the things of the world. We need to only look at what's happening in our culture as, as people are looking inside themselves more and more, determining their own truth and their own happiness, sin abounds when that happens. And so let us always look to God. Let us always behold him. And in turn, we will behold everything else as we should and find lasting joy and fulfillment and purpose from the one and only true source. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. That's what we try to do every Sunday. 
regardless of whether we're in this particular series or not. Grasp true and sound wisdom through the lens of our Heavenly Father. And so to do that this morning, we're going to look upon God's face as we reflect on the last name of God that we're going to cover in this series. This morning, we're looking at quite possibly the most important name so far that we've looked at. Because it is not a name that's given to God by others. It is a name that God gives himself. The very personal name that God reveals to himself to Moses through the burning bush. Yahweh. I am the Lord. And so let's pray as we dig into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, for a revelation this morning of who you are. Father, a greater understanding of what this, mean, this name means, this personal name that you reveal to Moses. Father, we want to look upon you so that we can know you, so that we can understand truth and wisdom and know ourselves. Lord, Psalm 910 says, And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And so, Father, may we know your name and we put your tr- our trust in you this morning, knowing that you will not forsake us, that in all things, whether it be in truth, in wisdom, in just needs of life, that you are faithful. And so, Father, we, we just give you praise this morning as we open your word and we look at this majestic name that you have revealed to Moses. May it impact our hearts so deeply this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as, as read by Susan, we're in chapter 3 of Exodus this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And, and Susan read for us um, the verses from 1 to 14. Uh, but I'm going to be mainly hanging out in verses 11 to 14 because it's in those verses that God reveals his name, reveals who he is. And so we just wanted to read the whole thing so we can get kind of the context of what is happening. So as we get into it, I want to give you a little bit of further background of what is happening with the people of Israel when God uh, comes and visits Moses in the burning bush. And I know that this is going to probably be a review for many of you in here, so just bear with me. But the, the people of Israel had moved from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt because of a severe famine that had struck the land, which was less severe in Egypt thanks to Joseph, one of Jacob, the the father of Israel's sons. The Lord had given Joseph uh, the ability to interpret dreams, and as a result of this gift, he was instated as second in command to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, because he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams for him. And it was actually through Pharaoh's dream that God revealed to Joseph there would be seven years of famine that would occur after seven years of plenty. And so this warning gave Joseph time to prepare and and ensure that the land of Egypt was stocked up with food from the years of abundance so that they would be prepared when those years of famine came. And so Joseph brought his father Jacob, his 11 brothers, and all of their household to Egypt. There was about 70 in number at this point. And so he brought them to Egypt so that he could take care of them. And while in Egypt, God's blessing was upon his people. They were fruitful. They continued to increase in number. They became strong. And it says they filled the land. And eventually, Joseph's generation died off. But the people of Israel remained in Egypt and continued to multiply and continued to grow in strength. 
And eventually a new king and a new generation arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. He did not know this Israelite who had done wonderful things for the people of Egypt. The king simply saw the Israelites as a different ethnic group taking up space in their land. And at this, they were at this point where they were large enough that he was worried that they could possibly overthrow the Egyptians and take their land from them. So to make sure that that didn't happen, Pharaoh put, uh, put taskmasters over the Israelites and enslaved them and oppressed them with hard labor, forcing them to work with brick and mortar and build Egyptian cities and tend to Egyptians Egyptian fields. And Israel's enslavement lasted for years and years. But it was also during this time that Moses was born. And through a series of events, Moses ended up being uh, raised by Pharaoh's daughter as an Egyptian, even though he was an Israelite. And for his younger years, Moses spent time in the Pharaoh's palace where he grew up. But then one day he went out and saw the plight of his people and ended up killing an Egyptian who was mistreating an Israelite. And as a result of his actions, Moses had to flee the land of Egypt so that he wouldn't be killed for killing an Egyptian. And he ended up in the land of Midian, away from his life in Egypt, away from his kinsmen. And it's believed that Moses remained for about 40 years in the land of Midian, during which time he married a Midianite woman and he became a shepherd. All the while, the plight of his people, Israel, remained. And they cried out to God for help. And they pleaded that he would save them from their slavery. There's about 40 years of history right there for you. And at the end of Exodus chapter 2, it records God's response to his people, Israel, in verse 24. It says, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. And it was time for God to rescue his people. And to do that, he was going to use Moses. And in the beginning of chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses through the burning bush to tell Moses the rescue plan that he has for his people. Moses is walking in the wilderness He's shepherding his sheep and he sees a burning bush that is not being consumed by fire. And out of that bush, God calls to him, Moses, Moses. And Moses responds, here I am. And I want to pause here because Moses' response is important. In the Hebrew, it consists of this word, hine which in the English is translated, here I am. But it had more meaning than Moses simply pointing out his location, like, I'm right here, God. It meant more than that. The same response is actually used by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, when Samuel hears the Lord calling him in his sleep. Samuel thinks that it's Eli that's calling him, the high priest, He's calling him. And so Samuel, who serves under the high priest, he, he wakes up and he goes to Gideon. He says, here I am. As a servant of the high priest, again, Samuel is not just pointing out his location. He's not saying, hey, I'm right here, Eli. His response is akin to, I'm here and I'm ready to serve. What do you need? And so with Moses responding the same way, it indicates that Moses recognized there's something special 
clearly going on with this burning bush. The Lord is calling him out of this bush. And, and not only am I here, God, but I'm ready to respond. And then as he approaches the bush, the Lord says in verse 5, Do not come near. Take off the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now in taking off his sandals, Moses was showing his reverence. He was showing his allegiance. To God. And he was showing the lowly position that he held in the presence of God. You know, it's interesting in, in Jewish culture that we wouldn't connect is that slaves often went barefoot in the presence of their masters to show the difference between them. And so culturally, Moses was taking on this posture of a servant before the presence of the Lord when he took off his sandals. In his response to the Lord, here I am. And in his actions of taking off his sandals, Moses was affirming his allegiance to God and he was affirming his willingness to serve the Lord. But that was before he knew what God was going to ask him to do. Because as their interaction continues all the way into chapter 4, you can read it, Moses is quite reluctant to do what God calls him to do. Right? He, he repeatedly tries to excuse himself from God's plan. And, and he, he, want, he doesn't want God to use him. Right? When, when, Moses, when God tells Moses the plan in Exodus 3 verse 10, he says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Immediately, doubts enter Moses' mind which lead Moses to ask two questions. Who am I? And who are you? These are two understandable questions. They are two questions that we all need to answer that are more relevant to our daily lives than we often realize. But Moses actually makes an error in asking these questions. He's asking them in the wrong order. He's worried about who he is, and then he's worried about who God is. And don't we often make the the same mistake? I think we often make the same mistake based on the amount of times when petitions that I hear from Christians that that sound similar to Moses' position. Oh, that, that can't be for me. No, that's not me. I I can't do that. I'm not good at that. God wouldn't use me for that. Don't call me into this. We look at ourselves first. But such conclusions often come when you start by looking at you as opposed to looking at God. What did Calvin say? A man cannot have a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looked upon God's face. Moses' inquiry should have been the other way around. Who are you, God? Then I will know who I am. And God is going to point out that very issue to Moses, that he has it backwards. And he points it out in such a good way. And So let's look at both of the questions respectively, because they're questions that we ask. First, Moses asks, who am I? Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? 
Moses' response to the call of God was self-doubt. It was insecurity. He's like, his response is very similar to the response that we looked at last week from Gideon. Right? Remember Gideon last week, Judges 6, 15? And he said to them, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. These are, these are men who are looking at themselves first, not the Lord. Now, granted, Moses' question was not unreasonable in the natural. It wasn't unreasonable. He was a shepherd at this point who had been away from the land for many years. And God's plan was to have a simple shepherd go to the most powerful leader in the most powerful nation in the world at that time and make a demand. In the natural, that's a little sketchy. Right? But not only that, the, the majority of the Israelites probably didn't know who Moses was at this point because he'd been away from the land for so long. Like, can you imagine if he showed up to lead them and said, I'm going I'm to lead you guys out of Egypt? They'd be like, who are you? You're a shepherd from Midian. Right? Like, why do you think you can lead us? And I just wonder if God telling Moses that he was going to use him to free his people brought up some insecurities in Moses from his past. Because the last time he attempted to help his people, it didn't go well. He killed an Egyptian. And his own people kind of turned on him and he had to flee the land. And so Moses is genuinely wondering, who am I? Who am I to take on such a task? And you and I will stay in the exact same place that Moses is in right now, so long as we look at ourselves first and primarily worry about who am I. But that's not ultimately what matters. Moses' self-doubt was so deep, in fact, that eventually God's anger was kindled against him. He says... He continually questions the Lord. And then in Exodus chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. Moses continually doubts and questions God to the point that God gets a little bit angry. He's like, I know you're not a great speaker, but how about Aaron? It's kind of like, Moses, you're doing this, okay? Right? Like, Get over yourselves, Moses. We're doing this. Let's go. And the lesson for us is this. Being unsure of ourselves is good to a degree. People I find in this world often tend to be far too confident of themselves or at least put on a a front that shows confidence that more likely covers up an abundance of insecurity. But either way, the lesson remains the same. It's good to be unsure of yourself if it leads you to God. If you have the kind of self-awareness that makes you go, well, I don't know if I can, but I know God can, that's a good thing. Being unsure of yourself is not good when it reflects what's happening with Moses. He's having a pity party and it's sinful because at the root of it, he's elevating himself and his importance over God's ability. And how often do we do that? 
God tries to ease Moses' self-doubts with two promises. He's gracious. He knows Moses is doubting. And so he, in his grace, he tries to calm his doubts with two promises in his response to Moses' question. Verse 12, he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Two promises there that God gives to Moses. The first promise God makes Moses addresses the issue of his first question when he asks, who am I? You'll notice that in God's response to his question, he doesn't answer it directly. He just kind of goes right over that question. And instead, God's promise puts Moses' question completely to bed. He says, I will be with you. God is basically telling Moses in this amazing promise that his presence will be with him. Get your eyes off of you, Moses. Stop worrying about you, Moses. Because that's what leads to doubts. And those doubts are ultimately irrelevant if I am with you. This is one of those pieces of wisdom that we we learn when we look at God first before ourselves. When we behold the presence and his power and his ability, we become much more confident because he is able to do where we are not able to do. And I would much rather trust in God's ability than my own when it comes right down to it, right? This is what he's saying to Moses. It doesn't ultimately matter. Like, if you have me with you, if you have my presence, your doubts don't matter. Look to me. I'm what matters. Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The second promise that God makes Moses is the promise of a sign. Now, some important geographical info. This interaction between Moses and God in the burning bush actually occurs in the region of Mount Sinai, which is helpful to know to understand the promise of the sign that God gives Moses here. He says, this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, I personally, <laughs> I read this so many times this week. I, I, I love what God does here. I absolutely love what God does here. It's one of those, those things that, it, that if I had the power to like have this principle change each one of us to get like deep in our hearts, I, I would just make sure it's stuck in your heart this morning. So I'm hoping the Holy Spirit does that for you this morning because we need to learn what God is telling Moses here. God says, Here's the sign that I have sent you. That when you do everything I've asked, you will worship me back on this mountain. Do do you see what that means there? The only way that Moses could receive the sign that God promised him was by faith. Go and do everything I've told you to do. And when you've done it, the success of it will show I've been with you the whole way. Like this is what faith is. This is what faith is all about. He's not going to receive this sign until by faith he did what God was calling him to do. 
You know, what I would love for all of us in here this week to do is to go into Hebrews chapter 11 and read it with that kind of lens throughout the week. Just several times this week, go into Hebrews chapter 11, all throughout it. Look, by faith, Abel offered to God a more reasonable sacrifice. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive. All of these things, all of these examples that we see are men and women going, okay, I'm going to step into it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to be faithful. And then God shows his faithfulness through their actions. So many of us ask God for these signs ahead of time. Okay, I'll go do that if you show me the sign now that you're going to be with me. And God's saying, no, go and do that. I am with you. I've promised it. And you'll see it when you're faithful. We get it backwards all the time. And the amazing thing about this sign is we see it come to pass in Exodus 19 when God gives Moses the law. 16 chapters later, which is a significant amount of time. That was the fulfillment of the sign. That's God going, there you go, Moses. I told you, I was with you. The second question Moses asks was, who are you? Verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Who are you? What do I tell them your name is? That question is Moses wanting to make sure that he will have credibility amongst the Israelites when he goes to them. And there's actually a cultural relevance to this question. It's not just Moses' personal uncertainty that's going on here. You see, the the Israelites had an understanding that, that God, that when an individual had a new encounter or a revelation from God, that encounter was commonly summed up with a new name. So Moses wasn't worried the Israelites were gonna ask him, well, who is this God? As though they don't know who their God was. The Israelites knew their God. They had several names for God that they called him from revelations that have been given in the past. For example, El Shaddai, meaning God Almighty was commonly used amongst them because that name had been revealed to them by, by their forefathers. And so Moses, what he's asking here is he's basically asking God to validate his mission to the people of Israel. For Moses to come to the people of Israel with a new name, it would verify his encounter with God for the people. And this common understanding is what we've been studying the last few weeks, right? This is what we've been looked at. We've looked at several interactions that have resulted in new names of God, in new revelations of who he is describing his character. El Roy, he is the God who sees. Jehovah Jireh, he is the Lord, our healer, and so on. And so Moses is asking God, what can I tell the people about you so that they know it is their God who sends me, that you are with me? And God responds in verse 14 and 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I could just sit on that name forever. I am who I am. 
And he says, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. These verses are where the name Yahweh comes from. Yahweh is translated in English as the Lord. Some English versions, and certainly the ESV that I use, it capitalizes the entire saying, I am who I am, in verse 14. And it capitalizes the entire word, the Lord, in verse 15. And this is because it is the proper and personal name of God. I am who I am in Hebrew is a play on the name Yahweh, which appears explicitly written in verse 15, which is translated Lord. In many English Bibles, again, certainly in the ESV, you'll notice the word Lord is is fully capitalized throughout the Old Testament. Any time that you see that, It is the translation of God's personal name, Yahweh. It occurs 6,828 times in the Old Testament, far more than any other name of God. Like, this is God's personal name. That we have the privilege to speak. Think about it. This name was so sacred to the Jews that devoted Jews wouldn't use it because they were afraid that they would misspeak, that they would accidentally take the Lord's name in vain. Whenever a scribe or a Pharisee would would write this name, they would actually use a brand new quill just to write that name. In fact, in order to not speak it, the Jews used a hybrid of it, which is where Jehovah came from. And Adonai comes from. They both mean my Lord. What I want to do this morning is I want to end by reflecting on six implications of God's name. First is this. God exists. (laughs) I know that That's a very broad statement. But I left it broad because God's statement about himself is so broad. And I didn't want to limit it. Because verse 15 says, I am. Like the depth of meaning from just those two words is astounding. Like God just exists. He just is. He has no beginning. He has no end. He exists eternally. He has always been and he exists presently right now here. He is with us and everywhere in the world because he is set apart from the world. He is constant. He is never changing and he will continue to be for all eternity. Like there's so much in that name that we can just 
sit there and think about and try to capture. We can't even do it with our finite minds. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God exists. He just is. And it is amazing. And we could just sit and think about that for our whole lives. Really. Like I can't even put it into words in a good way for you. The second thing that I would say from this name is God is self-determined. God says in verse 14, I am who I am. And again, there's just so much that we could glean, glean from that statement. Like I, I told a couple of people this week, uh, I've just been geeking out on the name of God. So I'm like, wow, I could just sit here for hours and think about this. There's so much to take in. The, this, this statement is so grand that it's so hard for us to capture. And, and Herman Bevnik, he tries to capture this statement. He actually captures it in a very amusing way, even though the quote's relatively accurate. He says this, God is that which he calls himself. And he calls himself that which he is. That's helpful. But it's true, right? And, and it's amusing because it's not that helpful. And at the same time, it speaks to the complexity of our ability to capture all that God is saying here. I am who I am. Like most certainly that tells us God is self-determined. He is who he is, which implies ultimate freedom. He is free to be who he is. And there is nothing outside of himself that makes him do or be anything other than his own nature. And what he does, he is he unwaveringly follows the direction of his nature. He is not influenced by anything outside of himself. And he is unchanging in his character. And knowing this about God in turn tells us a couple of things about us and the world that we live in, first, that we must conform to God. As many people wish it were true, we are not self-determining creatures in the same way that God is. We have a responsibility to our creator. He has the right to determine who we are. He numbers our days. It is our responsibility to conform to him. One of the greatest tragedies of modern Christianity is our preposterous notion that we can make God conform to what we want him to be. Because in our modern world, the character of God and his holiness sometimes comes off as difficult and inconvenient. No, that is sin that skews our view of God. How dare we try to make him be something that he is not because it would make it easier for us. Right? May we be like the Apostle Paul who declares, I am not ashamed of this gospel. May we conform to our God and where we struggle to know and where we struggle with his character, know that it is our own sinful nature, our own fallenness that just cannot connect the dots. It is not a problem with him. And the second thing that it tells us is that there is objective truth. If God is who he is and he does not change, then truth is constant. It is objective and it does not change since all truth and wisdom flows from 
him. In a world that screams truth is relative, God is our anchor that declares there is one truth, one way, one life, and it is found in Jesus Christ. Third, God reveals himself to his creation. This may be the most beautiful of all of it. I am who I am is both a deep truth about God that he is self-determining and it is a call to faith for his people. In the second sense, I am who I am means that I am who I have revealed myself to be through my actions, right? God reveals himself to his, to his people. He says, this is who I am, who you've seen throughout ages, who I continue to be. I will show you who I am, but I am only seen through faith. This is what God commanded of Abraham. This is what God commanded of Noah. This is what he commanded of Moses. This is what he commands of us that we have faith and he will show himself to be exactly who he is. And it's glory. Our God reveals himself to his creation, and that fact is utterly astounding. Like, it just made me think this week of Psalm 8-4, right? What is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. When you capture who God is, that is truly astounding. Why do you care? Why do you look to me? Why do you look to us? Why do you have favor upon us? It's amazing. Third, fourth, fifth, I don't know. God is a giver of and keeper of promises. That's another thing we see in this name. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. When the people of Israel heard this, they would know this is our God, God who makes promises from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob all the way down. Our God is a promise-giving God and a promise-keeping God. Genesis 17, 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. And last, God is a God of generations. The end of verse 15, he says, this is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's pretty amazing when you think about the thousands of years of men and women and children who have worshipped God. From the Israelites to now. And we have obviously a new revelation and a new covenant of God through Jesus Christ, but he is the same God that men and women have worshipped for centuries. And he will be worshipped by our children and our children's children and so on. It is incredible to think about that. 
Psalm 103.17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. This is our God that we worship. I'm going to leave you just with a quote from Philip Ryken. He says this, Knowing the name of God, knowing the name of the God he met at the burning bush, was a great help to Moses. Once he knew God's true identity, he was able to go back to Egypt and say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The rest of the Exodus is the story of God living up to his name, proving that he is the eternal God of covenant grace. Knowing God's name is also a great help to us. If God is the great I am, who always is who he is, then we serve the same God that Moses served. The only difference is that the God of Moses has given us a new name to call him. It is the name, the only name by which we must be saved, Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself says, in John 8:58 Truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am